Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And I'm Josh Carver. You are tuned into a special episode of Beyond the Pond. This is the podcast which Brian and myself generally use the music of fish as a Trojan horse to introduce the listener to other jam band to other non-jam bands. Reason being we love fish. Fish fans, sometimes fish fans have a tendency to get myopic and listen to fish alone. And the problem is when you only listen to fish, you'll find yourself having a very hard time fitting in with society when people ask you about other bands. And we're here to do something about that because we can't be having that. We don't like it. We, we, we want you to fit in. <laughs> we want you to fit in in coffee shops. And we want you to fit in at the... Uh water cooler at your office all the same um this is a very special episode uh we're very excited to have our good friend josh on with us and we're going to be talking about a band that is very near and dear to all of our hearts i would say probably at some point this band was on uh, a very similar level if not the same level for all of us as fish and uh we are doing a special episode we're deep diving into one single band into their entire catalog and uh going to uh, talk about a ton of different um, aspects of their history, their career, and uh, some great little uh, nuggets of information throughout. We're going to be talking about Wilco today, something that we are very, very excited about. And some of the themes that we are going to be exploring in this Wilco-centric episode include pushing alt-country to its stylistic limits, redemption and continuity can equal good music, and is Wilco in another creative peak? Before we get things going, we want to uh, properly introduce our guest here. Josh, uh, we, we all know Josh from, I'm guessing it was, it's Twitter that we all uh, met you on, Josh. Is that correct for, for you, Dave? Yeah, that is uh, certainly the first time I became aware of one Josh Carver. It's the amazing thing in this age of, uh, of Twitter, I meet all of my fish and baseball and beer and politically aligned friends on uh, social media. It's basically dating for, for uh, 30-year-old dads. Um, so, Josh, <laughs> as we are a fish-based podcast, uh, tell us just a little bit about your introduction to fish and kind of how you uh, made your way into the scene. Sure. And uh, thanks so much for having me on the pod. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I first got into fish. Uh, it was you know probably my sophomore or junior year of high school. The song that I think I first heard was Golgi Apparatus. A buddy of mine played it while we were driving around in his car, and I just had to seek out some more fish, so I found Junta on tape. This is before it was reissued on CD. Um, and like right around when I got into them um, was when Fish was still playing a ton of shows up in the Northeast. So if I had just motivated, I could have caught some shows at the Somerville Theater in 1991 or... I missed, I think, the Orpheum show in May of 1992 because of, like, a junior prom or something. Um, but finally caught them in uh, Matthews Arena for the New Year's Eve 1992-93 show. And uh, the rest is history. Caught them in Atlanta a bunch of times when I was in college, and I've been seeing them ever since. Right on. So you saw the, the early days, earlier than both of us. That's... Uh... What, what was it like seeing them in like those small little theaters and, and arenas? Did you anticipate them getting as big as they did? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the very first show I saw was at Matthews Arena, so it was already, that was probably their biggest gig to date. Okay. Um, and so I, you, you definitely got the sense of this momentum and that they were growing and that they were getting more and more fans. So, you know, I don't think anybody back then anticipated they would grow into exactly what they grew into, you know, in the later 90s and even what they are today. But, yeah, you, you could tell they were they were on a, a very sharp upward trajectory. Cool. Yeah, you can definitely hear it in the tapes. It's cool to know that you guys can see it. Um, do you have any particular, as you saw a lot of 1.0 and I'm guessing a good amount of 2.0 and 3.0, um, any particular favorite eras, particular favorite shows? Um, you know, my favorite era would probably be 1.0. Definitely the most shows that I saw was was, was back in 1.0. My favorite show has always been uh, December 14th, 1995 from Binghamton, uh, a show awesome. that you guys recent, recently recently covered on your uh, Haley's Comet episode. Uh, and uh, just, you know, an incredible show from, from front, to, front to back. Uh, a second set that really is just peak upon peak. Um, and, uh, you know, and honestly, recently I've mostly been listening to 3.0 when I listen to fish, yeah. you know, I'll sometimes go yeah. back and listen to 95, but, but uh, for whatever you want to listen to fish, I listen to 2017 or 2015 or 2013, or I just, I, I like listening these days to what they've been playing more recently. Yeah. I find myself almost listening to like 3.0 exclusively these days now as well. And then when I go back and listen to 1.0 for the purposes of this podcast, I think, wow, they can play fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. And especially, like you said, since, you know, summer 2012, since it's definitely uh, fall 2013, you know, without question, you've got yourself, you know, upwards of 30, 40 shows to choose from on any given night that you want to listen back to with quality jams, with quality sets, and... It definitely makes it hard sometimes to go back to the early stuff. Um, that sounds like blasphemy, I know, but uh, that's a that's a good thing. Um, so, as we are a fish-based podcast, we are also a fish-based podcast to uh, move beyond fish. And I know that you and I have had a lot of conversations about some of your favorite bands um, outside of fish. And I know that when we first started talking about bringing you on the pod. Um, one of the big conversations was let's talk about a band that has nothing to do with fish. So when you're not listening to fish, what do you find yourself listening to mostly? Um, admittedly a lot of dad rock. So spoon, new pornographers, Yola Tango, the national, uh, war on drugs, Bonnie Vare. Um, listen to a lot of grateful dead still indie rock, nineties, hip hop. Um, a lot of music from new Orleans. I went to law school down there. So, I'll listen to brass band music and a lot of New Orleans-based jazz. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, a lot of a lot of dad rock still and indie rock. Right on. Very, very this strange. podcast, it's, uh, this, is, this is certainly in your wheelhouse, it would seem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, you know, Fish played a really monumental summer tour this year. But uh, beyond the Baker's Dozen and... You know how, how excellent uh, their summer tour was. Um, any favorite noteworthy albums that you've uh, heard this year? Any good shows that you've seen that were non-fish? 
Yeah, for um, for albums, I was thinking of this band, new band, or at least from the last couple of years, called Cigarettes After Sex, which admittedly has a, a terrible band name. <laughs> but they play this this great, slow, almost ambient dream pop. Uh, their album was released, I want to say, back in June. It's It's very much a mood record, great for listening in a dark room late at night, or you could almost drift off to sleep to it. And, and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, if you're a fan of the first, uh, the XX album, it's probably something worth checking out. Um, yeah, I'm just so good. The first SX album. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. It's, it's fantastic. And, and cigarettes after sex, their, their new album is it's somewhat along those lines, just very chill, low key, dreamy, ambient. Um, it's good. I like it. Right on. Right on, right on. Um, any good shows you saw this summer? Um, other than the two, I made it up to or made it down to Madison Square Garden for two of the Baker's Dozen shows. Um, but uh, I caught Spoon um, up here in Portland at the State Theater a few oh, months sweet. ago. Um, hadn't seen them in over a decade. Um, and they just put on a, a fantastic rock show. Really? Uh, you know, yeah. Um, you know, they're just... They're just, you know, professional musicians. They kind of ham it up. Um, you know, Britt Daniel is is just a great, you know, he's a rock star. Yeah. Um, and, and of note, this was actually the first rock concert I took my 11-year-old daughter to. Uh, she had a great time, had her earplugs in, so didn't <laughs> lose too much hearing. But, um, yeah, it was just, just fun to kind of bring her along and just kind of watch the show and just watch her reaction to what it's like to be at a, a rock concert. Yeah, I saw them back in 2014 in Chicago and actually ran into Pat from Wilco um, prior to the show starting and um, was just like, the, the, the concert was unbelievable there. You're absolutely right. They're a professional rock band. Britt Daniels is like a throwback era lead singer. Um, it was It was an awesome show overall. Yeah, they're coming to New York City in late November. They're playing two nights, I think. The second night sold out. First night still has tickets available. I'd like to go. Of course, every concert I go to ends up having a hundred dollar babysitting fee tacked onto it. <laughs> I understand how that goes. But all else being equal, I haven't seen Spoon since they did like an in-store at the now defunct Virgin Megastore in 2007 when the Gaga Gaga record came out. So I would very much like to go to that concert. Hopefully, I'll uh, we'll be able to. So, Josh, just to wrap up, where can we find you on Twitter, and what can we expect you to tweet about? Um, you can find me at Nola Socks, um, and I'm generally tweeting about fish. Music, beer, and the Red Sox. That's all you need, really. That's all, about all it. you need. All you need. <laughs> and on that note, let's get to the Wilco. So we're first going to discuss uh, why you should be listening to Wilco. Um, you know, they're not a. Do you band. like music? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, they're not a jam band, but um, they definitely mix up their sets, and you know, they're as much of a live band as a studio band. Um, you know, they've really developed this great connection 
um, between their fans and the band that's not unlike Fish. Yeah. Uh, you know, Fish has all of their festivals that they've been, uh, you know, putting on since the Clifford Ball back in 1996. And starting about seven years ago, I want to say, um, Wilco has been um, holding the Solid Sound Festival out in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. Um, and they've, uh, I think they did it like two, two or three years in a row, but more recently they've been having it every other year. Um, and this past year, um, they put up for a fan vote um, what, what album that they should play in its entirety. The fans voted for uh, being there. Um, and so the band basically in their, in their actual set, they played being there, which is a double LP in its entirety. And then they came back and they encored with Foxtrot, which was the runner up vote getter. And I don't know, to me, that just seems like a very fish type move. Um, and you know, the festivals are very different. They're multi-band festivals. They're held at, um, Mass Mocha, which is a, uh, modern art museum, but, um, you know, it's, it's very much curated just as fish festivals are curated. They get their favorite bands there. A lot of these other, um, you know, Wilco associated artists and people are there. John Hodgman, the comedian always appears on the comedy stage. Um, Nick Offerman, um, offered up this great deadpan intro to Wilco's Friday night performance this past year. Um, you know, and, and just the band, it's this combination of uh, overt experimental periods, um, you know, classic Americana songwriting, lyrical brilliance, um, really obsessively labored over LPs, and more recently, this late career resurgence and um, this music, musical artistic darkness that just gives this overall depth of sound that encourages countless re-listens to both uh, their albums and a number of their shows. Yeah, and I would add to that, you know, you go through just some of the core members of the band, you know, Tweedy's sharp wit and his uncanny melodies are really what have always driven the band forward. But you add in that Jay Bennett, who was a member of the band for a number of years, his sonic exploration, what that added to the band from a um, musical standpoint. Nels Klein, who's been with the band for over a decade now, his really atmospheric and experimental guitar work. The drummer, Glenn Kochi's non-traditional rock drumming patterns that are some of the most interesting drumming I've heard in rock music. Um, and John Sturrett's just classic, watching him on stage, foot stomping and his waltzing bass lines. He just carries that band in the rhythm section in such a great and, and sound way. Um, and then every other musician that's added to their evolutionary sound over the last 20 years, from guys who are playing pedal steel to multi-instrumentalists who have uh, come in and out of the band like Leroy Bach and um, Pat, San, uh, Pat Sanson. Um, you can contrast them to Fish in the sense that while their live shows are thrilling and worth seeing a number of times, and I know we've all seen Wilco a number of times, um, you know, in a sense you don't necessarily need to see them more than once a tour, um, maybe twice in the same venue, like when they play in Chicago or like at their solid sound festivals when they mix things up quite a bit. Um, their studio work is really where they shine. That's where you're getting um, the best aspect of Wilco. Though I would argue that um, their live show is, you know, if you say that their studio work is there is where they're supreme, similar to Fish's live show is where they're supreme. Um, Wilco's live shows, which is only a step below what they've done studio-wise, are much better than what Fish has done uh, within the studio, in my own opinion. 
Um, but they are true alchemists in the studio. Um, you know, just a note in terms of like what you're going to see from Song's uh, setlist standpoint. I saw them this past summer for the first time in nine years. It was a great, great show. 19 of the 25 songs I saw in my last Wilco show. So you're never going to see like five di- completely different Wilco shows um, unless you really seek them out in unique settings. But you're going to get an excellent, excellent rock show out of them. I think that uh, they're also similar to Fish in the sense that they never really could tell their styles or their goals towards record companies or the music industry at large. Um, for many of the post-2000 bands that we feature on this podcast, Wilco stands a preeminent influence. An example of a band that really had the chance to hit it big early, but they kind of said no thanks, opting instead to push their sound beyond the traditional norms and in turn become an even bigger band based upon their experimental successes. I would say that fame-wise, the fame probably peaked somewhere in between the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and Ghost is Born albums. Uh, I even saw them play New Year's Eve at Madison Square Garden in 2004 on a bill with the Flaming Lips and Slater Kinney, which proves how weird shit can get when Fish isn't around to play Madison Square Garden on New Year's. But... uh, (laughs) At this point, they've kind of settled into a cult band fame, albeit a pretty large cult band. I mean, they can generally sell out multi-night runs at 2,000-seat theaters most places in the country, and also they can play small outdoor sheds when they feel like it. Jeff Tweedy can clearly provide for his family and then some, but not quite at fish levels. I just see that their live shows are really, um, I call them American comfort food of the highest order. Sort of like sitting on your couch in front of the cracking fire with a golden retriever next to you. I mean, I saw them play the Beacon Theater recently. I didn't really stand up and dance. I didn't need to. Maybe for the encore, I just kind of sat up in the balcony and watched it, and it was warm, and the live show was great, and they played in front of a bunch of fake trees. And although I'd heard a lot of the songs before, it's... uh, you know, just a very comforting live experience. Absolutely. Um, from an evolutionary standpoint, um, and just kind of the significance of their overall career and their sound, I think one of the things that's most striking about Wilco is the fact that thematically they've evolved from a very proper alt-country outfit in the same vein as Uncle Tupelo uh, to a band that openly embrace sonic experimentation and non-traditional rock effects on records such as Being There and more so Summer Teeth. And later in 2002, they released their masterpiece Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is a record that has sonic footholds in so many different styles, it's nearly impossible to pigeonhole, though it does often get called the most experimental dad rock record of all time. And it is a dad rock record, to be sure. Yeah, I think Rob Mitchum once said that if uh, dads are mowing their lawn to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, that is a good thing for the universe. <laughs> uh, uh, they push their experimentations uh, past the logical extremes on A Ghost is Born, which it's it's a really dark, personal, and deeply troubling account of Jeff Tweedy's battle with addiction, but uh, still a strong, strong album. Yeah. Um, then after a break, the band returned renewed, and they presented... Two really stripped-down affairs that showcased the raw talents of what was now a sextet, um, which really forced them to focus on the simple craft of writing uh, these really classic three-minute alt-country pop songs. 
And then over the course of their last three A records, they really begun experimenting in, in quite a refined way. Um, first on the diverse and mostly good, sometimes excellent, the whole love, and then next on this bizarre, fresh, and disjointed Star Wars. Um, and finally, their most recent album, which was released last year, um, is the subdued and incredibly nuanced Schmilko. Um, in some ways, they really come full circle, and in, other, in others, they've really proven how far they can take their sound while retaining the simple origins that made them so captivating originally. discussion of Wilco really should start with a brief discussion of Uncle Tupelo, which is really the band that um, Jeff Tweedy uh, was in prior to uh, Wilco. It was formed back in 1987 in Belleville, Illinois, with Jay Farrar, uh, Jeff Tweedy, and Mike Hadam. Um, and it was really, it was, it was a Jeff Tweedy, Jay Farrar uh, band, basically on, on any given Uncle Tupelo album. Most of the songs alternate between Jeff and Jay singing lead. Um, it was expanded to a five-piece with John Starrott and Max Johnson joining the group. Um, and they were really an incredibly influential band, particularly in the larger alt-country scene. Um, and part of this is due to their own admitted influences, and they were, varying, they were as varying and widespread as the Minutemen to Hank Williams. Um, Uncle Tupelo released four albums. And they really peaked with their major label debut of Anandine in 1994. And shortly after its release, Farrar announced the band's breakup due to larger differences between him and Tweedy's musical approach. Um, and they played their final show on May 1st, 1994, before disbanding. And then within a few days after uh, Uncle Tupelo called it quits, Tweedy, Tweedy formed Wilco with uh, Sturrott and Johnson. 
And then Jay Farrar uh, had formed Sun Volt with Mike Hadum. And uh, Sun Volt's first album, Trace, uh, which was released in 1995, was critically acclaimed, and it really overshadowed the uh, Wilco's release of AM at the time. Yeah, and so to kind of kick off our chronological history of Wilco, you have to start with their first record, AM, but you really have to start with Uncle Tupelo, like Josh was going through there. And AM, um, for any Wilco fan, this is the foundation. Uh, This record sounds and feels like a continuation of the music Jeff Tweedy made with Jay Farrar and Uncle Tupelo. And And the initial competition between the two is definitely heard throughout the entire record. Um, the song that we're going to feature from this album is uh, one of my favorites on the album, Passenger Side. And in many ways, this is the uh, archetypical uh, uh, early Wilco song. It's a country shuffle about a drunk who needs a few rides while he waits out the return of his driving privileges. The slide guitar, the fiddle, they fit perfectly al- alongside of the flang- flanger guitar effect. Um, and this is really just like one of those centerpiece old school Wilco songs that you can start to slightly hear hints of the hooks that Tweedy's going to be uh, really mastering in albums to come, but there's none of the sonic experimentation. This is a very straightforward uh, song that he's written here. Um, you know, with regards to uh, the band recording AM, um, AM came out uh, prior to Trace coming out from uh, uh, Sunvolt. And you can only imagine that after Tweedy heard the critical reception of Trace, it really pushed him to work that much harder um, towards the next LP uh, for Wilco, which which would be being there. Um, Jeff Tweedy has attributed much of the straightforwardness on this record, oddly enough, to his abuse of marijuana at the time. And uh, he actually stopped smoking pot shortly after this record concluded in order so that he could focus on experimentation and diversifying his sound. And there are some uh, hints of what's to come, however, as uh, Casino Queen, It's Just That Simple, Dash 7, um, and Too Far Apart would, would really fit right at home on being there. Um, and really, this is this is just its foundational Wilco, um, in a similar sense that the national self-titled LP uh, is, or even Junta for Fish. It's, it's just a solid take on their found, foundational strengths, um, and it kind of gives you a few peeks at what's to come and really just sets that baseline for um, what they would what they would come become in the uh, ensuing few decades. Yeah, this is to be totally honest, I, I'm such a fan of what they do with noise <coughs> and with experimentation. Um, honestly, I'd say that this is probably my fourth most played Wilco record uh, to date. I love how straightforward it is. I love how it perfectly sums up the foundational sound that made them such a catchy, widespread, and essential band going forward. And uh, I just have to say, I don't know how any of you guys feel about this. Dash 7 is a top 10 Wilco song for me. I love that song to death. Um, What are your thoughts on this record overall, Josh? Do you find yourself listening to it often? Um, I wouldn't say I find myself listening to it often, but, uh, you know, absolutely a few times a year. I'll go back and give it a spin. You know, honestly, usually in the context of listening to Uncle Tupelo, um, I'll kind of find myself in, you know, diving down a little bit of an Uncle Tupelo rabbit hole um, every six months to 12 months. And AM kind of just flows really nicely from, uh, you know, Uncle Tupelo's Uncle Tupelo's alt country. Um, And it's just kind of a nice continuation of that for me. 
Well, let's go ahead. Let's set the foundation here for Wilco. We're going to listen to just a little bit of passenger side so you guys can hear the origins of Wilco and kind of where they uh, um, where they started from and, uh, you know, where that classic alt-country sound really was working with them um, in the earliest stages of their career. next album was released in 1996 and it is the double LP being there um, and and really from the first from the opening notes of the lead track on the first LP misunderstood you know this is going to be a departure from the alt country uncle Tupelo and AM sound um, from that very first track you hear feedback distortion noise these pounding drums um, and similarly on the opener for the second album uh, second second disc, Sunken Treasure, again, it shares much of what's great about Misunderstood. And, you know, both of these songs are just fantastic examples of the things that make Wilco great and how they have such a, they just have such a broad, dynamic range in their songs. They can play very loud and, and very soft all within yeah. the same, same track. Uh, um, and I kind of almost liken it to some of the you know, some of the qualities that made the Grateful Dead a great band. Uh, think of songs like, you know, the great grand sweeping builds in Morning Dew, where it's a song that starts off, you know, very quiet and then just peaks with this, you know, soaring uh, Jerry Garcia solo. Um, you know, that that's some of the types of things that you'll hear in these songs. Um, you know, and personally, I also just love a lot of these up-tempo songs on the first disc, uh, such as Monday, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, and I got you at the end of the century. Yeah, you know, your note about the dynamics is something I would say, you know, listeners should be really paying attention to as we go through each of these records. And it's something that 
we'll get to this later in the episode, but when you take Star Wars and Schmilko, they've almost mirrored that, um, you know, ability to work with really loud, really aggressive sounds, and then these very, very soft, nuanced uh, musical approaches. On, on, on one record is very kind of scronky and in your face, and the other record is very, you know, plaintive and really like relaxing and sounds like a Sunday morning. Um, but yeah, it's great to hear it early on in their career like this and such a stark difference from what you heard on AM. Um, I would say being there might be the most perfect encapsulation of Wilco on a record. Um, this may be, uh, apologies, you know, out the gates for the second comparison, but it is similar to how Boxer is really the perfect encapsulation of the national sound. Um, there's that very naturalistic alt-country sound spread throughout, but as opposed to AM, the straightforward nature is interrupted regularly by dissonance, noise, and lots of experimentation. Um, the album, though, it's, it's marked by a clear musical dichotomy. Besides B and C showcase songs like Red Eyed and Blue, I Got You, followed by What's the World Got in Store, Hotel Arizona, and then on side C, where you've got Sunken Treasure, followed by Someday Soon and Kingpin. They really kind of mess with the track listing, and it all fits. Like, it, this doesn't feel like a double album of songs just kind of patched together, at least to my ears. Um, in terms of the making of this record, so the title of this LP is indeed a nod to the 1979 Peter Sellers film. As Tweedy noted, the mindset of Chance was uh, an anal analogous to the themes that wound throughout the entire record. Uh, this was Tweedy's first LP since the birth of his first son, and he's noted that the experience of becoming a dad actually inspired him to write more experimentally, not less. And uh, I would say if you had told me before I was a dad that smoking marijuana would make someone write less experimentally and uh, being a dad would make them write... With more experimentation, I would have called you crazy, but I totally get that now. Um, each song on this record was practiced, recorded, and mixed in one day, which was an attempt to create an uh, overall looseness to the album that really defines it. Um, and in an effort to keep with this sort of spontaneity and this uh, kind of anything-goes approach where they were really trying to mess up their sound as best as possible... All the band members actually played different instruments in the recording and misunderstood. And um, really shocking because the recording of that song is one of my favorite songs that they have on tape. And to think that they're not all playing their own instruments is, uh, is pretty impressive. Being there was a double album, and yet Jeff Tweedy was able to convince the label to let them sell at the same price as a single album. And to convince them, I guess Tweedy had to forgo a large amount of royalties for the record. It's estimated he could have lost over $600,000 in the deal, a fact that he says he does not regret at all. This was really uh, the album that got got critics and fans to really take a look at Wilco. Like I know we uh, we did an episode, a few episodes back, that was sort of the look at me, I am the captain now moment. This would, uh, <laughs> being there, would certainly be that album for Wilco. Um I always kind of compare this one to the late Tom Petty's Dan the Torpedoes in that there's lots of up-tempo country rock hits that establish their sound. While certainly deeper than AM, I mean, they weren't really going as deep as they would just yet. But especially on the first disc, it's very classic-sounding Heartland America rock and roll. I mean, you've got tracks like Monday, Out of Mind, Out of Sight, I Got You. I mean... 
in their live shows, those three songs always end up being played towards the end of the set and the encores because they're just classic shots of adrenaline. Yeah, you know, from uh, from this point until Sky Blue Sky, Wilco went on a run that's defined their overall career and really shaped their live repertoire. Uh, I, I think it would be insane at this point to think of going to a show and not hearing them being there through Sky Blue Sky era song. You know, 1996 to 2007 is Wilco's defined peak. Um, you hear the start of this in this sprawling record, and while AM is really the foundation of Wilco's song, or Wilco's sound, being there was when Wilco truly became Wilco. And um, so I can't think of any song that would be a better uh, fit to play to just showcase the uh, um, stark difference between the being there sound and the AM sound than the opening track, Misunderstood. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to play a little bit of that for you right now. In 1999, Wilco released their third LP, Summer Teeth, um, and this album really represents an even sharper departure from the band's original alt-country sound. Um, 
I describe the music as kind of shiny, glistening, 60s, 70s pop rock. Think the Beach Boys, the Beatles, but you kind of have this shiny, happy music. Uh, and, you know, the lyrics, though, really betray the music. Uh, these are very dark lyrics addressing, um, you know, relationship troubles, even domestic abuse. In She's a Jar and Via Chicago, these are particularly disturbing songs lyrically. Um, drug abuse, such as Shot in the Arm. Um, and, and much of this is due to the marital issues that Jeff Tweedy was experiencing at the time. And his wife, uh, Sue Miller, was actually very open to him writing um, with as much creativity and transparency as possible. But she was admittedly nervous about the overt violence uh, in many of the lyrics. Uh, and in addition, Tweedy spent much of 97 and 98 um, buffing up his reading choices. And many of his lyrics are really influenced by his readings of Henry Miller, William H. Gass and John Fante. But yeah, with Summer Teeth was a really uh, much more of a studio album. Not a live sound that the first two studio albums had. I mean, I think this is the first time that they were using Pro Tools for overdubs. And the first time that the band actually wrote songs in the studio, as Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett used the studio as an opportunity to flesh out ideas rather than simply present finished products. Uh, to me, Summer Teeth is really kind of the odd duck in Wilco's discography. It doesn't sound like any other album. I just keep thinking of um, the song I'm Always in Love has this really like loud, wheezy organ sound to kick it off. It's a very produced album. Some would even say it's a bit overproduced. There's uh, lots and lots of studio, studio gadgetry. And it has a very bright shining sound i mean i have to say out of all the wilco records i don't listen to it quite as much because sometimes it sort of hurts my ears well i mean songs like uh shot in the arm is amazing she's a jar the first song i can't stand it via chicago all incredible songs i think i prefer them in the live format versus uh how they sound on summer teeth this was my intro to Wilco's. Uh, handed this CD, kind of a Imation CD, CDR, was handed to me um, over Thanksgiving by an older cousin of mine. Uh, and the first Wilco song I heard and then immediately learned on guitar was How to Fight Loneliness. It was a formative Thanksgiving uh, night in my life. Uh, at the time, I was just getting into fish. And for the next seven years, this was uh, Thanksgiving 2001, uh, Fish and Wilco were my uh, 1A and 1B bands. Um, and so I've always had kind of a soft spot for this record just because it was the first time I really um, found myself listening to Wilco, really liked Wilco. Um, but I would definitely agree with the uh, fact that it is quite overproduced, um, at least in hindsight, it's weird to kind of say this. It would seem like its cousin album is uh, Star Wars, just in the sense that it kind of has a feel of like, well, let's see what this pedal or what this sound effect uh, can offer. And especially like the latter part of the album, the secret tracks that end it, it just uh, it doesn't really have a, any sort of like finality the way that um, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or A Ghost is Born does. Um, what do you guys think? Where do you find where do you find that this fits in uh, their overall catalog, Josh? Um, I, I agree that it's an outlier. Um, I like it. It's it's not one that I return to frequently, and and I very much agree 
um, with with the the idea that these songs kind of I like them live. Um, they really kind of pop live, um, and you know on the on the studio album they're good. They're definitely overproduced, so I think that's probably why I don't return to the album as much. But I mean, as as a collection of songs, I mean, there are some you know really really classic Wilco songs that came out of this album that they still play, you know, very frequently in concert to this day. Yeah, definitely. You you get um, a true basis of the band's overall live repertoire in this album, and you really hear kind of in a sense the um, the skeletons of what would come on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. You know, this is an album where they're just figuring out how they can like twist and turn their songs their songs in, in a way that they can sound completely different than just a folk song and you know you you think of that early scene in yankee hotel fox or in um, uh i'm trying to break your heart where tweety's talking about we're just trying to play the song in question camera off of yankee hotel foxtrot as many different ways as possible so it's not a folk song anymore and then how to rebuild it from there and you really hear that starting in um in summer teeth and this is very much a jeff and jay record and in many ways, you know, this is almost Jay Bennett's creative high point. This is where he and Tweedy had kind of equal reign in the band. Um, obviously, Jeff's, you know, the main lyricist, but Jay was able to really just, he, he's all over these songs. Um, and Tweedy really relied on him um, to push their songs further beyond their logical barriers, which would in turn really push Tweedy towards his own creative peak with uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. So why don't we go ahead, um, Dave had mentioned earlier uh, the song I'm Always In Love. This really does encapsulate the like pop, you can, you can hear like the origins of, of Wilco in this song. It's got that kind of alt-country shuffle to it, but um, a ton of effects uh, that really add to it and, and uh, really kind of showcase where the band was going from here. So here's I'm Always In Love off of Wilco's third album, Summer Teeth. Sweet throttle 
up next, in 2001, uh, Wilco released their fourth studio album and their masterpiece, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, this is one of the very best uh, LPs since the turn of the century. Um, it would easily be in my top ten albums of all time. And personally, it was also my introduction to Wilco. Um, the, there's a long backstory to this uh, album, and it's all featured in this fantastic rock documentary called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, which is also the first track off of this album. Um, and basically, the uh, movie tells the story of when um, Reprise Records refused to release uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot because when Wilco turned it over to the... the uh, studio they didn't hear a single um and so the label didn't hear a single and um basically wilco successfully uh, got out of their contract uh they refused to reformat the out uh, the record and then they actually started streaming the album and this was back in you know 2001 before lots of bands would stream their albums you know before actually releasing them so they streamed their album for i think months and months um, before signing with um, another Warner Brothers subsidiary, Nunsuch. So they basically left Warner Brothers and came back to Warner Brothers. Um, and then their album went on to be their, their breakthrough hit. Um, it was really the, the, you know, the peak of their career. Um, it was the breakthrough that the band had been waiting for. It's been certified gold, um, led to a huge increase in their fan base. You know, all 11 of these songs are regularly played on tours, um, at least eight of the 11 are still in regular live rotation. If you go to a Wilco show these days, um, I mean, you're going to hear, you know, usually half of the songs on this album. Um, and really the, the saga as well as, as well as the breakdown um, of Tweedy's creative partnership with Jay Bennett, that's really the focus of this 2002 documentary. Um, and again, I can't say enough about um, either the album or the film. Um, the film features live performances, studio fuckery, rarities, um, Tweety vomiting um, after this really intense argument with Jay Bennett about, uh, you know, a particular track of the that they're trying to record. Um, Winter in Chicago, there's some kind of bizarre feature, bizarre part of the um, film where there's a young Fred Armisen who's hanging out um, backstage with the band. Uh, there's a fantastic version of Pot Kettle Black. Um, and, uh, it's really, I mean, you know, go listen to the album and then go watch this film. Um, you, I really can't say enough about, about either of them. Yeah, I agree. The, uh, documentary just, uh, blew me, blew me away when I, um, when I first saw it and, uh, really was a great companion to the, uh, uh, to the record. Um, so the origins of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot really lie in a 2000 concert series that Jeff Tweedy was invited to perform at in Chicago uh, with an artist of his choosing. He had recently developed an obsession over the last few months with Jim O'Rourke's music and decided to invite him. Um, Jim O'Rourke is a Chicago-based producer and musician in his own right. He's produced a number of records and um, really works in this um, kind of sonic landscape that uh, tied very, very well uh, together with what Wilco was trying to do in terms of pushing their uh, 
all country folk songs uh, as as far and far away from that like folk center point as possible. We could, to be totally honest, do a full podcast on Jim O'Rourke as well. He's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, so O'Rourke responded that he wanted to play, uh, and he suggested drummer Glenn Cochi join them. Um, the show went so well that the trio formed a group called Loose Fur, and they recorded an album together. Uh, when later in that year, late 2000, early 2001, when Wilco was starting to go back into the studio to write songs for what would be their next record, um, Tweedy uh, found himself completely displeased with drummer Ken Coomer, the original drummer in Wilco, and his takes on the new material. Uh, found it too rigid, too rock and roll based, and that he wasn't willing to experiment into, you know, kind of weird um, rhythm structures and uh, kind of play, you know, off kilter uh, the way that he was looking for a drummer to play. Uh, he and the band unanimously decided to fire him and replaced him with Kochi. Um, the opening scene, actually, from I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, where they're recording a really scronky version of Camera, is uh, from Kochi's first day with the band, which is a really unique first day with a group. Um, from an overall sonic standpoint and dedication to studio alchemy uh, to the famed legal battles that allowed Wilco full creative control, uh, this is one of the most influential albums of the last 20 years. And uh, few albums, perhaps no, no other, but uh, definitely it's on a short list of records um, that really brought indie rock to its true mainstream. Um, this very well might be my favorite album of all time, not just simply the peak of Wilco. Um, I can throw this album at any time on, and I will just listen to it straight through no matter what I'm doing. I rarely can skip a track. It's, it's just absolutely perfect start to finish. It's funny. I used to think of of, uh, of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as a classic novel that I realized was amazing, but I had little desire to actually get through. Think of For Whom the Bell Tolls or James Joyce's Ulysses, which is to say it's objectively great, but dense and not overly fun. Then I saw them do the songs live, and my opinion changed entirely. I can't think of any one album I appreciated more after seeing the songs on stage. This was actually my first time seeing Wilco live. It was uh, in Central Park in New York City in 2003. It was a double bill with Sonic Youth. And nowadays, the summer stage concessions, they're really corporate and kind of overly hipster. But in 2003, it was mostly burgers and hot dogs, and the whole venue smelled like a backyard barbecue. The weather was perfect. Uh, I, I recall even being on the fence over whether or not to go see the Wilco show or go to a Mets game that night to see one of uh, the rumored star pitchers who was up and coming. It was Aaron Heilman, and uh, Mets fans and sports <laughs> fans know that that didn't work out. In retrospect, it seems utterly fucking ridiculous that I would have gone to see that over Wilco. Unfortunately, I, I made the right decision. It's a top ten show I've ever seen. Just the warmth radiating off the stage during the song Jesus, etc. is something I will remember for the rest of my life. And uh, I think as Josh was saying earlier, Wilco knows where its bread is buttered on like any given night, you're still going to hear at least half of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot play live. And that's because nobody's going to complain about hearing I'm trying to break your heart for the 17th time. And to me, 
that song is the Wilco song. And we can argue back and forth about the signature tune, but that's that to me is the song. And you know that that song, I am trying to break your heart. It is. It's it is one of the best, if not the best, Wilco songs. And you know, it's not just great because of all the studio fuckery. And I mean it has it in spades. It it opens the album and there's all these sonic effects, but you know, you can strip all of those out of there and you just listen to a, a Jeff Tweedy solo version, such on such as on his recently released uh, solo album, which is just him uh, solo acoustic. It's called Together at Last. And you just realize, like, you know, this is a collection of fantastic songs. Um, and, you know, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart is one of them. It is, it is a fantastic song, whether you, you know, screw it up in the studio with lots of effects or you just strip all those effects away and you just put Jeff Tweedy playing that with his guitar. Yeah, you know, and similar to uh, the one off of uh, Together at Last, which is a really lovely album from earlier this year, just taking all those great Wilco songs and stripping them down as simply as possible. Um, the version that leads in the documentary, uh, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart, just opened my eyes completely to how high quality of a songwriter Jeff Tweedy was. Um, this album... I don't know if there's a bad song on this record. Um, I know that my, you know, opinion of what the best song on the record has probably changed 11 times, um, depending on moods I'm in and depending on when I'm listening to the record. I, I just love it all. And I, I feel like if you're a fan of Beyond the Pond and you haven't heard this record, uh, just turn the podcast off right, right now. Pause it. Uh, remember to return to it. But listen to the album and then continue listening to beyond the pond from there it's an unbelievable and absolutely essential record i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that if you're listening to beyond the pond and you've gotten this far on the wilco podcast you've probably heard yankee hotel foxtrot before if you haven't you're just really really curious yeah respect that <laughs> right <laughs> if you haven't heard it you've wasted your life <laughs> no well, why don't we go ahead and uh, listen to um, what may well be the Wilco song, uh, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart, the opening track off of uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot.
segment we're going to talk about the next wilco album which was a ghost is born which was released in 2004 and the song that we're eventually going to play is spiders parentheses kid smoke the uh big big kraut rock song off of that album so with the narrative behind a ghost is born this is jeff tweedy's migraines album he was allegedly addicted to painkillers throughout the recording process he had to check into rehab prior to a European tour, which resulted in uh, canceling a bunch of tour dates and pushing the release album, uh, the release date of this album back. And the penultimate song is a 15-minute ambient drone meant to symbolize the noise in his head. It's uh, it's sequenced sort of oddly. At times, it feels slightly unfinished. But together with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, songs off of A Ghost of Born still comprise the meat of a Wilco set list. The guitarist Nels Klein did not factor into the studio recording of this album. However, he joined the band in time to play most of the songs on stage, and as a result, many of them contain extended guitar workouts, especially, uh, at least that's what you said, and Muzzle of Bees especially. Um, I think that the best showcase for the Ghost is Born songs is not the studio album itself, but your perfect kicking television double live album, which was recorded at the Vic Theater in Chicago in May of 2005. Nearly every Ghost is Born song is featured on that album and given very extended workouts. But Ghost is Born was originally entitled Wilco Happens. Had it been named that, it could have perhaps prevented us from the kitschy onslaught of Wilco the album from five years later. And Jim O'Rourke, who mixed Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, produced A Ghost Is Born in full, continued his and Jeff Tweedy's partnership and exerted his influence over the band perhaps more than any other time in their history and really brought him in to serve as kind of a new Jay Bennett figure for uh, Tweedy at the time. Um, Overall, one of the big standout aspects of A Ghost Is Born is that there's just lots and lots of Tweedy soloing throughout the record. Um, however, he specifically composed his solos to prevent any sort of similarities to jam bands. And like Dave noted above, Muzzle of Bees, Hummingbird, um, at least that's what you said, Handshake Drugs, these all feature extended solos. And the most soloing that you would hear on any Wilco record by Jeff Tweedy. Um, really making up for the fact that he was the lead guitarist in the band at the time and um, that there was this you know, pretty heavy confusion set in with him as he was going through something of a, uh, an, an addiction uh, part of his life as well as dealing with some pretty intense migraines. Um, a lot of that factored into the overall sonic qualities of the album. 
Uh, and in contrast to their last two LPs, uh, A Ghost is Born was recorded on Pro Tools, and then it was played live in the studio to finish things out. And Tweedy's goal was to recreate the excitement and sonic experimentation that was on Summer Teeth and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot with just plain old music. Um, and some of this was due to the fact that Tweedy simply didn't think he'd be able to push their sound beyond uh, the accomplishments of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which kind of makes sense. I mean, here you have they've you know they're back in the studio to record a follow up to you know what was already considered a a classic you know a masterpiece. So it was you know a a quite quite probably a large uh, large mountain to climb to jump back into the studio and, and make some new music. Um, this is also the first record with uh, Mikhail Jurgensen. Uh, he joined the band as a permanent keyboardist during the touring of this album. And this was also the last record with multi-instrumentalist Leroy Bach. Yeah, and you know, like you were saying, um, A Ghost is Born feels like that logical next step. Feels like the only other option that they could have had would have been to like create a very standard back-to-basics record a la AM. But um, obviously that's not where they were in their headspace. Um, what are you guys thoughts or, on this record? Or a la Sky Blue Sky, which is coming which up Which came out next, yeah, absolutely. I think A Ghost is Born is great. Me too. I listened to it. I don't know if I listened to the album, but definitely I listened to the Kicking Television live record that has all the Ghost is Born songs a lot. I mean, I love Muzzle of Bees. That's a top five Wilco song for me. I love Company in My Back. At least that's what you said. The solo is like some incredible, like crazy horse, like minor soloing. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, got Theologians. Theologians. It's a great Rolling Stones rock song. I love Hell is Chrome. I love uh, the late greats to end it out. This, um, when I start, when I was listening, when I listened to this record in college, I, I think I listened to this for a time more than I even listened to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and it just really resonated with me. It's got that kind of '70s studio feel to it, um, just like the classic guitar work that's on it. Uh, it's so different from so many other Wilco records, and really represents a stark contrast to what they were doing in 1999 and 2001, and, and you know, and then later in their career as well. It's really a unique snapshot of them at that point in time probably my favorite wilco album to listen to on a train lots of looking out the window at the landscape going by songs on this album and there's there's really i mean there's no bad song on this album no and i mean but but for yankee hotel foxtrot um yeah, this is probably I would say this and being there are you know right behind Yankee Hotel Foxtrot in terms of favorite um, Wilco albums for me, and this this might get number two just because again, I mean there's there's not a bad song in this album. It is I don't you know, love wishful thinking. All right, <laughs> almost not a bad song in this album, but uh, it's it's you know from beginning to end it's it's really a great collection of songs. It probably. Just it doesn't feel as cohesive, obviously, as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It doesn't just to me play as a great, you know, complete album. Yeah. Part of that might be the the 15 minutes of white noise towards the end of it, but um, but again, as as a collection of songs, it's it's fantastic. How many times have you guys made it through less than you think? Never. Probably once. Yeah, I think I've. 
I think I've, I, I have it on vinyl, so I think I've actually listened to it probably more than once, just because I don't want to <laughs> shut it off. But I definitely don't put on the last side of the record uh, when my wife's in the, at home. <laughs> I don't think she would be able to tolerate it. Um, yeah, this. Um, you know, I was looking at reviews of the record when it first came out, and it's it's got slightly mixed reviews. I think, like Pitchfork gave it like a mid six, um, and I think it's really been a grower of theirs long term similar to sky blue skies that we're going to talk about next but in a completely different way it's grown really well it's um its songs just really fit in the live setting uh that has really made it in hindsight be uh one of their one of their more revered albums of all times but uh definitely understand the 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 travel um companionship of this album this was a huge record for me when i was uh, studying abroad in Europe and accompanying me on many a long train rides. And didn't it either like won a Grammy or was nominated for uh, like best packaging? I believe it was. I think you're right about that. It's got the egg and you open it up and the egg is cracked. Yeah, and the vinyl packaging has a bunch of like weird late 60s Beatles uh, type uh, in- um, illustrations on it. Um and then there's the book that accompanied it, the Wilco book that uh, has some great interviews and some great photographs from an era that you can't really picture the band at this point in time. Um, but, you know, seeing them as they were developing from a kind of hodgepodge four-piece into an actual six-piece band by the end of these sessions and by the time that they took the, the uh, songs on the road. You know, it's, it's interesting to wonder what this record and, and you know, we're going to take kind of a break here from Wilco for a second after A Ghost is Born, had they not brought on um, Mikel and Pat and, and Nels and really solidified the sound for the first time in their, at this point, 10-year career, it's kind of uh, interesting to think that this could have been, like, in some cases, the last Wilco record that there was. And it kind of has that feel in a sense. Like, it kind of feels to me like it's the closing of a chapter, like a true closing of a chapter on Wilco. Do you guys hear that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point. That's sort of like, you know, they, they reached their peak with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and this is this is still somewhat of a continuation of that. But, yeah. you know, something had, something had to change after this. Right, right, right. Like, you can't keep pushing that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot sound like they showed. And, but at the same time, like, you know, they've put out, this is their fifth album, 10 years. You know, they're, they've gone through however many band members at this point in time. Not a lot of bands survive that sort of stuff. You know, it's amazing that they would, after this, move into their most um, uh, kind of, you know, placid and, and happy and successful, for all intents and purposes, part of their career. Yeah, this was kind of the last album that grew out of any drama really yeah. with you know with the band after after this it's all smooth sailing yeah it kind of makes you wonder if tweety just insulted everyone during the star wars sessions just to uh <laughs> get them to play some some rougher music but um you know you mentioned it earlier dave uh talking about a ghost is born we're gonna play a section off of spiders um which is their like encore anthem that they play at I'm pretty sure every show I I haven't seen a Wilco show that has not contained spiders 
Have you guys seen one post-2005 that didn't have spiders? Yeah, the last one I saw didn't have spiders. Oh, really? Uh, prove me wrong immediately. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was a Fortnite run at the begin. Oh, okay, okay. That, that's uh, why. I think they that played doesn't it. Count. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I know that they did if like a five night run at the Riviera in Chicago, and they. Um, if it's a standalone <laughs> show, you're getting the spiders. Yeah. And you're getting the whole audience kind of chanting along to the, the along big guitar, it. the big guitar riff. Yeah. This song is, it's so interesting to me in the sense that there's really no other Wilco song that sounds like it. It sounds like they're trying to, exp- I mean, they're obvi- it's obviously got Krautrock influences, but they're influences with, you know, the kind of almost electronic and dance crossovers into rock music at the time. It's just such a bizarre song to be included in their overall catalog. Although now it's such a standard that they rely on on a regular basis. I, I will never forget the first time I heard this and I was just like, who the hell is this band? What are they doing? I love everything about this. It was like all those thoughts intermingling at the same time.
right. So we are going to take a quick break here from going through Wilco's discography. And we're going to talk about some fish. What a unique aspect of this podcast, huh? Um, so we figured... Ostensibly, it is a fish podcast. It, it, it is on, uh, on most days. Um, so we figured, uh, rather than give you guys new albums, since we're talking about a um, different band, we would talk about some great, often under-the-radar shows from the uh, excellent year of 1997. We are fast approaching the 20th anniversary of Fall 97, the tour that Fish Destroyed America, which we could all very much use again. Um, uh, and we are going to talk about a few shows from here that we would recommend for you guys. Um, I'm going to talk about a show actually from the summer. This is July 25th, 1997 from Dallas, Texas. This is a show I've been listening to recently when trying to surprise myself again with 1997 Fish. And this show has loads and loads and loads of really great, unique jamming throughout the entire show and really showcased the high point that Fish was at coming off of the heels of their second European tour and into um, their, uh, their summer uh, uh, U.S. tour. Uh, second song of the set, or the first uh, set, is a 15-minute Wolfman's Brother, and the first set ends with an absolutely incredible bathtub gin. It's just over 20 minutes. Direct segue into Makasupa Policeman, followed by a direct segue into ACDC Bag to end the set. A segment that was immortalized on the Magna Ball from the archives, and I remember driving into Magna Ball uh, in that. The golden hour in uh, southern New York, just south of the Finger Lakes. Absolutely gorgeous country. Listening to this in the car as we were pulling in um, to to the uh, festival and just being like, this is ah, this is the best band ever and I'm going to see a great weekend of music here. Um, set two and the encore of the show featured Bob uh, uh, Galotti on the uh, second drum set. Uh, this features... Uh, the first ever Type 2 Chalk Dust Torture, an excellent ghost uh, during the summer of Ghost, and a theme from the bottom encore. And uh, I will give uh, my opinion here that the only two spots this song should be played are the show opener or the encore. It just fits. Really? I love huh. it in those slots, and I just kind of am tepid on it in any other spot in the show. Um <laughs> My I second show is a theme from the bottom encore, June 29, 1995. It was indeed. Hmm. What do you got for us, Dave? So I have November 26, 1997 from Hartford, Connecticut. This show is not so much unheralded as it's relatively well known, but it's in the shadow of the epic Worcester shows that followed. Also, this was a... Uh, the night before Thanksgiving, so I'm guessing some people skipped it because they had to travel and whatnot. So it's got your big tweezer opener, which Mike Gordon has turned way the heck up. This is uh, fall 1997, so he was much more prominent in the mix. And there's a top 10 version of the song Taste to close out the first set. But what really the gold is here is this, I think it's the only type 2 character zero in history. You get a serious... 20-minute rock jam at what it sounds like at one point, Trey's playing the riff to uh, the Toadies Possum Kingdom, you know, that song where he's like, um, I'll treat you well, my sweet angel, so help me, Jesus. It's uh, 
as classic mid nineties, one hit wonder jam as they come very James Brownified 2001, lots of start and stop jamming and super bad teases. Um, very funky as 1997 versions tend to be great segue into cities and the encore. You get a cavern with the, uh, original lyrics, which I was unaware of at the time. Thought it was quite strange, but it's, I mean, very, very good show. Even, uh, considering it was in fall 1997. And as far as, um, kind of under the radar 97 shows that I thought of, uh, the first one that popped into my head was, uh, the Worcester, I'm sorry, the Hartford show that David just mentioned, fantastic show that took, uh, I think it took me five or six hours to drive from Boston to Hartford on Thanksgiving Eve, but it was worth it. Mm. It was a fantastic show. Um, but I'm going to talk about uh, the next show that they played. Um, again, you know, this is not really a uh, under the radar show, but I think it probably is a bit in the shadows of uh, the Saturday and Sunday night Worcester shows, which featured uh, that 60 minute runaway gym on Saturday. And then on Sunday, they had that insane first set Wolfman's. Um, but Friday night is no, no slouch either. Um, you know, one show after they opened uh, with a tweezer, they opened with a uh, curtain into you enjoy myself. Um, as a first set opening combo, you really can't get much better than that. Pretty good and opening combo. Not not bad. Um, and then the second set, uh, this is just one of those to me almost flawless fish sets. Um, it's Timberho, Limb by Limb, Slave, Ghost, Johnny Be Good. That's it. Five songs. Each one, you know, played better than the next. Um, and to me, it's it's kind of not unlike uh, Night Two, Set Two of the Clifford Ball just with some type two jamming, um, you know, on paper, it looks like a good set list. They're playing good songs, maybe looks a little bit unremarkable, but you know, the, the playing is just, is just fantastic. Um, like literally each song is a notable version, um, for that song and, you know, ghost coming in, you know, kind of late in the fourth quarter with, with some great type two jamming. Uh, it's just a great, great example of uh, peak fall 97 fish. What a time to be alive and seeing fish that was, huh? Yeah, I was at the November 28th show, and there was a time. It's easily in the top five fishes I've seen. If you get me on the right day, I might say it's the favorite fish show that I've seen in person. That ghost is it is deliriously funky. It's great. It's, it's, it's great. wah-wah, chicken scratch, black exploitation fish funk at their best. It's actually the only the only two shows I caught in the fall of '97 were the uh, the Hartford show and then night one of Worcester. Night two, I was at my five year high school reunion, <laughs> and then night three, I was on my way back to uh, Atlanta where I was living. You spent your five year reunion instead of seeing that show. Uh, that's, that's hardcore. Mistakes were made. We've all been there. We've all had a chance and uh, and passed on the show. I know mine is Randall's Night 3. I passed on that for a barbecue. <laughs> I just didn't have tickets to Randall's Night 3. I probably could have gone. That was, that was a mistake. Especially because Randall's Night 3, that was in June of 2014. I was going to become a father in October 2013, uh, October 2014. So that would have been an ideal time to say, F it, I'm doing all three Randall's shows. But I didn't. 
I regret it. I actually have two others to add to it. Uh, I was about to become a father in fall of 2015 and uh, had a chance to go and see The Man night two and pass it up to be responsible at work, which was probably the best decision to make. But then I couch toured the show and just was like, fuck. And then uh, even worse was this summer. My last day of work at my most recent company was July 26th. And when they announced Jam Filled, my wife looked at me and said, I'd support you if you just skipped out on the last two days of work. (laughs) And I said, okay, 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 no, I'm going to be responsible. And then, uh, ah, Jesus. That that could that could be that could be the worst. My my worst my worst missed show. I have to take us all the way back to uh, spring of 1993. So I had gone to my very first fish show for New Year's Eve at Matthews Arena in Boston. Went back to school uh, freshman year in Atlanta, and Fish was playing a three night run at the Roxy. And they announced the first two shows initially, and I bought tickets to Friday night. And then they added a third night, and I bought tickets to Sunday night. And, like, for some reason, I just didn't buy tickets or <laughs> go to the Saturday night show. <laughs> like, I didn't have any other plans. I didn't have anywhere else to be. There wasn't some great party. It was just, oh, I'm going Friday night. I'm going Sunday night. I don't need to go every night. Whoops. So those are really the moments where, I mean, obviously responsibilities and life get in the way later in but those are the shows where when you miss them, you're like, I'm just never going to miss another fish show that I can see. Exactly. <laughs> to the Wilco segment of the podcast. So at this point, we're going to discuss the 2007 album Sky Blue Sky. And the song which we are going to play from that is Impossible Germany, which we will put down in a bit. So this was the first Wilco studio album to record with the live band lineup that they have today. Nels Klein especially makes his presence felt. It was a uh, far more collaborative songwriting effort than in the past. And uh, I guess the narrative in this album that it's considered to be a return to normality of sorts for the noises in Jeff Tweedy's head. So this was purposely their Laurel Canyon-style chill album, and it is indeed mellow, sometimes to a fault. This was uh, initially derided as data rock to the nth degree, and side B is ever so slightly sleepy and cheesy. No one's ever really going to be yelling for the likes of Hate It Here or 
Leave Me Like You Found Me at the live show. And plenty of people call it Sky Blah Sky because they're so funny. But uh, <laughs> but really, though, um, time has been kind to Sky Blue Sky. Uh, the first six songs in particular have really stood the test of time and appear in the Wilco live set with frequent regularity. Uh, and the song Impossible Germany is the Nels Klein showcase now. It's a setless staple on par with anything in Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and it you can just let the man completely shred your face during the last seven minutes or so, which end up being a uh, a dual guitar jam on par with uh, with Marky Moon era television. You are my face inside with the seeds. I also get plenty of recent live airings. And uh, they opened a handful of shows in the most recent tour with uh, the song On and On and On. And uh, You Are My Face was featured prominently in a Volkswagen campaign in addition to some other songs from Sky, uh, in addition to some other songs from Sky Blue Sky, to which I say, so what? What goes a large band and those dudes need to eat? And if you got the version on iTunes or also the version on Spotify... There's a bonus track called Let's Not Get Carried Away, which was recorded during the Sky Blue Sky sessions. It is a ridiculously fun B-side that ultimately would not have fit on the record because it has vocal shredding. It's got feedback. It's a very fun song that just did not fit the vibe. But you should find it. It's easy to find. To, to me, this is really this is the perfect Sunday morning album. Um, it's yeah. it's just great to to put on while you're reading the Sunday paper, drinking some coffee. It's chill, um, and it's just it's one of those albums that just has a time and place, and that is on Sunday mornings. Um, I think a lot of the the initial negative reaction or negative reception uh, of this album was probably due to expectations. I mean, you definitely notice Nell's client on this album, um, particularly as David noted in Impossible Germany. But I think, you know, many fans probably expected that Nell's was going to, you know, again, bring out the experimental side of Tweedy and Wilco. And instead, Sky Blue Sky is, is really one of the least experimental. It's not an experimental LP at all. Um, there's this famous quote from Tweedy, um, at the time that Sky Blue Sky was released, and it, it really reads like blasphemy to many Wilco diehards. He said, I got nervous about the technology in Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. If you need a certain amp or pedal to make a song what it is, it isn't a song. Yeah, and um, to add to this, you know, this is a very much a whole band collective record. This is hearing their instruments and the musicians as they are and really their rawest and, and kind of purest form um, to to accomplish this this goal many of these songs were recorded in a single day as the band tinkered and toyed with their songs less than really any studio album since AM um, for the first time uh, Tweedy opened up the songwriting duties to other members of the band previously only him and Jay Bennett had written songs together and as a result there's really this group think collaborative feel to all of these songs um, which uh, uh, often have great results and, and in some cases, like Dave mentioned earlier, some mediocre results, especially towards the latter half of the record. Um, but perhaps more than any other Wilco album, I would say save for Schmilko, um, this is a definite time and place record. If you're looking for anything on level with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or Ghost is Born in terms of experimentation, you absolutely will not find it here. 
However, unlike their next two records, there's nothing creatively reflective about this album. Uh, simply put, at the time, in 2007, the band had never made a record like Sky Blue Sky until this album. Um, it showcases a really content and genuinely happy Jeff Tweedy, which is a uh, uh, refreshing, calming, and satisfying view of Wilco at middle age. It's um, something of a transitional record for the band um, as they would enter their most successful and often frustrating period to certain fan parts of their fan base following this. Um, and it would really take some time for them to find a true creative spark again in a full album format that uh, had originally driven their rise. And we're going to get into a couple records here that I think we all in our agreement are really uneven and uh, work their way towards this late period of, of uh, Wilco's career where they seem to be on a career rise again. Sky Blue Sky really represented this last moment where Wilco was creating completely new albums again. Um, until their uh, their latter period. So we're going to play a clip off of Impossible Germany. Um, I don't think that it's... Uh, there's really no other part of the song that we can play and do the album justice other than the instrumental guitar peak of um, Tweedy and Klein going back and forth. So I sincerely hope you guys enjoy this. This is Peak Wilco, and uh, I hope you go back and uh, give Sky Blue Sky a second listen if, if uh, you haven't listened to it in some time.
power-up of 2009, which brings us to Wilco, the album. Yes, that's what it's called, Wilco, in parentheses, the album. And the song that we're going to play from this record is Bull Black Nova. So this was the first Wilco album to me that didn't feel like an event and started to feel a bit like product. Seems like partially because Wilco the album seen a lack of coherent narrative for the indie blocks to latch onto. Like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was the whole controversy with the label. Ghost is Born was Tweedy's migrant headache album. Sky Blue Sky was the return to normalcy. Wilco the album was kind of, okay, here's another one. And it doesn't help that the songs aren't quite as sure-footed in the past, bordering on cheeseball at times. I'm going to call uh, the song You and I, which is the uh, Jeff Tweedy duet with Leslie Feist, candidate for the lamest Wilco song ever. And side B, side B of this album is completely forgettable. Um, let's see. You Never Know. That's a decent Jackson Brown ripoff. The Warren Zevon biting title track is kind of fun. The song One Wing is fine. The album's got a camel on it, and camels are awesome. So I'll give it that. But literally the only song from this album that ever made into local lives nowadays is Bull Black Nova. It's a subpar effort top to bottom, and they know this, which is why they don't play the songs live anymore. Uh, however... On the tour, the, I think the summer of 2009, they did get to play Keyspan Park, which was the Mets' single A minor league ballpark, and they took Yola Tango out on tour. And Yola Tango, big baseball fans, they got to fulfill a lifelong dream by emerging from a dugout and waving to the crowd. So if Wilco, <laughs> the, al- if Wilco the album allowed Yola Tango to do that, then that justifies its existence right there didn't they play uh didn't yola tango come out for spiders during this tour when they played yes they, i think yeah i think that's they did mm. they did it was uh pretty fitting some ira yeah it was some ira kaplan guitar scronk noise which was fucking great um so similar to dave I, probably more extreme I, I hated this record when it came out and it still has never really grown on me um, I hated the joke of it all. I hated the corporate tongue-in-cheek nature, which I f- thought never really fit Wilco. Um, I hated how every song sounded like a reductive version of a better, older Wilco song. And I really hated the costumes that they wore on this tour and uh, just felt that it took them even further into this uh, stereotype of them being boring, tepid dad rock. Um, and it just offered very little Bullbach Nova aside um, in terms of new... You know, great lasting rock uh, or live music. Um, and tellingly, this is the first record where a lot of the songs just haven't lasted in the live setting. Um, at the time, I felt the same way about Wilco that I currently feel about Arcade Fire. They were a band Ooh. that I had considered a top five <laughs> band of all time that had gone on a road I neither understood nor really desired to follow them down. And, uh, this is proof there's still hope for Arcade Fire, as I am 100% back on board with Wilco after the last three years of musical output, 
And uh, will always hope in my heart of hearts that Arcade Fire is able to uh, bring me back in. Um, I have never actually heard any of the songs off of Wilco the album live, um, but aside from Bull Black Nova, I have um, no desire to. And I listened to this album again today before we were recording it just to make sure that my extreme emotions, uh, negative emotions towards the album were uh, accurate or not, and uh, they only confirmed the way I felt about the record. <laughs> and and I, I generally feel the same way. I mean, my, my reaction to this album was meh at best. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I recall correctly, I mean, they opened every show and they toured and supported this album with Wilco the song, and it included these, like, you know, purposefully cheesy, pre-recorded, member-by-member band introductions. Oh. I, I think what this this really might show with the album and the tour and support of it is that Wilco just doesn't do irony particularly well. True, no, uh, true. There was there was a greater emphasis on the studio versus um, Sky Blue Sky as you know Nels and Mikkel spent significant time overdubbing the album following the conclusion of the recording. Um, you know, uh, one positive of the album it's probably the clearest and most positive of all Wilco records. Um, to draw a, a fish analogy. You might want to kind of compare it to Fish's Joy. Um, you know, it's it's the sound of a band that survived. Yeah, it is their joy. That's a, that's yeah. a very good analogy. Yeah. yeah. You know, it survived. Uh, you know, it's a band that survived some very difficult years, realizes how lucky they are to simply be playing music with their best friends for a job. They're no longer struggling to reach the mountaintop. And, you know, for perhaps the first time in their career, they're just scanning the world below and taking stock of how far they've come. While this sensation tends to produce banal music, which is the case here, there's still something worthwhile listening to one of your favorite bands simply, you know, enjoying themselves and having fun making music. Which is, I think, why it's fitting that we would play the darkest and most uh, riveting song on the record, uh, Bull Black No, (laughs) (laughs) which is, I think, a song about a a guy just after he murdered his girlfriend um, driving away from the scene of the crime. Uh, so dichotomy everywhere in this album. Uh, so let's go. Ahead. Just having fun making music. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's go ahead. Let's listen to a little bit of Bull Black Nova, um, and you'll kind of hear uh, the reductive sound in this compared to uh, like Spiders, Kid Smoke. But um, still, this is a, I think we would all agree probably the peak song off of this record. It's coming down.
folks, and now we're in the year 2011, talking about the eighth Wilco album, The Whole Love. And the song that we're eventually going to play from that is the album Closer, One Sunday Morning. So I think this album still has too much filler on side B, but it's an improvement over Wilco, the album. And uh, the song we're going to play, One Sunday Morning, it's a 12-minute acoustic song that is obliquely Jeff Tweedy dealing with the death of his father. I think it's arguably the single best song since the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot era. And the opening song on this album, Art of Almost, becomes quite the noise and light showcase for the live show with additional bass heaviness that actually, when I saw it, I kept thinking it called to mind uh, the Cure song, Fascination Street. I mean, it almost kind of in the live setting sounds like some of uh, like Yola Tango's longer, noisier tracks like Pass the Hash, I Think I'm Good Kind off of their uh, incredibly titled I'm Not Afraid of You and I Will Beat Your Ass album. <laughs> but um, aside from Art of Almost, it seems like they've stopped playing songs from this one too. So at this point in their career with this album, it almost seems like they're trying a bit too hard. Like they need to loosen up. It's too stiff. And I think aside from one Sunday morning, side B is largely forgettable fluff that would have been interchangeable with tracks on Wilco, the album Uh, side A is a lot better. It's got uh, the really, really peppy song. I might, Um, it's got black moon. It's a very good song. Um, Also, I think this was a, if I'm not mistaken, the first album that was released on Wilco's own label, DBPM, or I guess you could also uh, say Decibels PM. Um, I've always loved uh, a kind of an outtake from this album, which I think they recorded kind of in celebration of them forming their own label, which is Nick Lowe's um, I Love My Label. Um, and just a quick digression, speaking of Nick Lowe, um, I think when they were touring in support of this album, he opened a number of, of uh, shows for them. And if you haven't already seen this, uh, you can find uh, Wilco, Nick Lowe, and Mavis Staples practicing the wait backstage at the Chicago Op- Opera House in December wow. 2011. Wow. And it is, it is one of the happiest, most joyous, and uplifting versions of the wait that I've ever heard. Like, honestly, if, if you're having a bad day and you just need, like, a pick-me-up, Play this a few times, and it'll put a smile on your face. It is, it's something else. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, back to the album. I think I might like it a little bit more than David. Um, I agree that the second side, with, with the obvious exception of One Sunday Morning, is largely forgettable. But I might, Dawned on Me, Born Alone, they're all really solid Wilco songs. I also really like the title track. Um, if you get this album on vinyl, which I have it, um, One Sunday Morning is actually about two minutes longer than the CD and digital version. Hmm. So if uh, if 12 minutes of One Sunday Morning isn't quite enough for you, get it on vinyl and you'll get about 14 minutes. So they just uh, kind of let it go a little bit longer before fading out, uh, since I believe it basically takes up the last side of the uh, double album when it was released on vinyl. Um, and, you know, the One Sunday Morning and um, Art of Almost, they're, you know, now live staples. And when they were touring in support of this for the first time, they would usually open up uh, their shows with the one-two punch of One Sunday Morning and Art of Almost. Uh, and, you know, really just a great one-two punch opening up with two of the best Wilco songs over the past decade. 
yeah, it's you know interesting how those two songs bookend the album, and and they are absolutely I, I think the strongest songs on the album. I would agree with both you guys on that. Um, when this record first came out, you know, I heard Art of Almost. I, I believe that that was the lead single, or at least that, that was the first song that I heard from the record. Um, and I was so excited, and I wanted to love this record so, so much. Um, and, uh, you know, I agree with b- what both of you guys have said. Um, however, I did for a time, and still to a certain extent, struggled with the uh, middle 10 tracks. They felt largely forgettable for uh, to me in the months and years following the release. However, since Star Wars came out, and I've really become reignited with... Uh, Wilco overall and really much more interested in their creative output. I've come around on everything through the song Open Mind on the record and am more warmer on the uh, second half of the album. Um, honestly, I really wish that they'd play songs like I Might, Dawned on Me, Born, to, Born Alone, and The Whole Love more than they do now. I think that those would fit really well in a live setting and would break things up really nicely. Um... In the end, there's a part of me that almost feels like this record and Wilco the album could have been combined into one much stronger 11-track album. Yes. Um, You know, like kind of a break in the middle of their career between Sky Blue Sky and where they are now. But um, I get it. You know, they were writing a lot at this time and um, they were super stoked about the success of the band from a live setting because at this point, they were playing some really fantastic live shows. Um, If nothing else, though, uh, you know, probably the best accomplishment of the whole love is this represented the first true experimentation that they allowed themselves to go down with Nels Klein, which was something that he celebrated throughout. These songs have uh, definitely a rougher edge than a lot of um, certainly Sky Blue Sky, but definitely as well um, uh, Wilco the album. And he was able to exert a little bit more influence. I mean, you just have to listen to the first two minutes of Art of Almost to know that the band was starting to become um, more experimentally minded at this point in time. Um, they have a much rawer feel to Sky Blue Sky or what's or um, uh, Wilco the album, and uh, this overall approach to the record and the shows that came after. I've got to imagine that they impacted their transition towards uh, Star Wars, even though that record was still four years away. Um, so we're going to go ahead. We're going to play a bit off of One Sunday Morning here. Uh, really beautiful way to close out the album. I think one of the, if not the best, closer that uh, the band has ever produced. Outside I look lived in Like the moon's in a shrine Forgiven
So we have reached kind of the final chapter, if you will, of uh, Wilco's career to this point. Uh, we're going to talk about their ninth album, which came out in 2015, entitled Star Wars. And the song that we're going to feature off of it is called Random Name Gem- Generator. Uh, so Star Wars was a surprise album. It was released on, uh, I believe it was July 16, 2015, digitally and for free. And then that night it was performed in full during their headlining set at the Pitchfork Music Festival. Um, Really kind of shocking moment to be a Wilco fan. I remember waking up, going on the internet, seeing a review for uh, Star Wars, seeing the album being uh, um, available for free, and then knowing that they were playing Pitchfork that night and hearing that they were just playing the show, the the album in full to open it up. Um, This is really the creative reset the band had been searching for since Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and definitely since Guy Blue Sky. It's loose, it's very low stakes, it's incredibly experimental, and in some parts of it, it's comical. Um, Many of these songs sound and feel like sketches and demos, like they weren't totally finished with the creative process, but they didn't really care and would rather their fans hear them in the process of getting to some destination than any sort of a finished product. Um, In some cases, yeah, you could argue these songs would have benefited from a little bit more tender love and care in the studio. But at the same time, the unhinged, anything goes, really experimental nature of the album is what made it at the time of its release and even in revisiting it so fun and so, so refreshing. And, you know, I I also remember the day that this album was released and and it was it was exciting. It had been four years since. Wilco had released their last album and I was actually driving down to New York on business and I was able to just download it before uh, jumping in my car and I basically listened to it nonstop on that trip. Um, but, you know, songs like Random Name Generator, You Satellite, Taste the Ceiling, these all contain some signposts of classic Wilco songs, but in this uh, setting, they're all still somewhat overlooked. Um, many of the songs have failed to hook up in the larger live rotations um, although Random Name Generator, Pickled Ginger, and The Joke Explained were, uh, were pr- pretty featured prominently on the 2017 tour. Um, and in many ways, this uh, album fits alongside Tweedy's 2014 side project, Suki Ray, um, in that it sounds like Tweedy is just doing everything possible to break free of the sonic and thematic constraints of the 20 years of Wilco while trying to ret- retain, retain whatever spark it was that made the band so iconic and influential. Um, and, you know, and as a result, these songs make even longstanding Wilco fans feel like they're hearing, hearing Wilco for the first time. And, you know, in, in some ways, it's not unlike uh, Fish's 2014 chilling, thrilling experimentation. You know, the band just kind of went into the studio and, uh, you know, it sounds like they quickly recorded this album and it sounds fresh. Um, and very different from anything that they had done before. 
Yeah, I just wanted to add that um, Wilco albums in the post-Yankee Hotel Foxtrot era, there's a lot of a lot of descriptors. People call them well-crafted, warm, intricate, American, scronky, but uh, most of their albums post-Hotel Foxtrot kind of seem to be lacking in the almighty fun factor. Star Wars is a course correction. Uh, from the title to the cat in the cover to the fact that it was free, it's a fucking fun album. I mean, you don't always think of Wilco as being fun. In Star Wars, it's it makes me snap my fingers. It puts a big grin on my face. It's goofy. Tweety's playing with uh, like a flanger pedal at one point, I think, in random name generator. It's, uh, it's a goofball record, but... I think it actually might be the strongest album top to bottom since Ghost is Born, believe it or not. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, um, whereas, uh, you know, you know, I, I think it was uh, you, Josh, that pointed out that on Wilco, the album, you know, uh, Wilco just doesn't do irony very well. There's nothing really ironic about this album. It's just fun in a... We got a band. Let's get a band in the studio. Let's jam a bit. Oh, we wrote some songs. We kind of got someplace with it. Yeah, maybe we'll re- revisit it. Oh, shit, we're going to record an album, or we're going to release an album. Like, it's just, uh, it sounds like something a band in their early stages would release to fans. Um, you know, just as kind of like, hey, this is what we've been working on. And um, it kind of speaks to the freedom that Wilco is almost at at this point, where they have really nothing left to prove. So why not just present the creative process as it's in play on an album like this? It, it kind of feels like like a deliberately, you know, minor Wilco album. Yeah, and yeah, in, yeah. in some ways, in some ways, Schmilko does as well. They're sort of, you know, two bookends. But it just seems like, you know, they're deliberately kind of smaller albums. They're not these big statements, but they work. Yeah, and we'll, I'll talk about it a li- little bit when we get to Schmilko, but it's it's that aspect that really intrigues me the most about Wilco right now is that they're completely comfortable making these smaller albums and kind of working through whatever it is they need to get to to reach this next kind of plane in their career. Um, the fact that they're opening kind of the the roof of the loft and letting us kind of peer into their creative process you know whether it be this very noise driven um kind of unhinged album uh in star wars or smilko that sounds like a very hushed um you know really really quiet uh recording session really contemplative so definitely could you could you could you imagine you know the wilco of yankee hotel foxtrot where, you know, as in as in the movie, I am trying to break your heart, yeah. you know, every last sound on that album was like, you know, deliberated and tortured over and like so much time was put into like every note. It had to be pitch perfect. This is a completely different band now. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, to have now obviously effects and noise uh, are a part of this record, but um this is really this is like taking what they tried to do with at least the way it sounds to me what they tried to do with sky blue sky where they featured just the pure noise that comes out of each of the uh band members instruments and just kind of like twist them and like tweak them a little bit 
And so rather than like dedicating a ton of time to post-production, it seems like they dedicated a ton of time to like crafting songs um, and then, or, or just kind of like jamming and seeing if they could come up with something that was hook driven, apply some lyrics to it and, uh, and, and, and throw it out there to the world. And, but it, it, there, there's really nothing labored over at the end. It's, it's uh, a very raw take on the band at this time. So um, with that, why don't we go ahead and listen to a little bit of Random Name Generator off of Wilco's ninth album from 2015 uh, entitled Star Wars. to 2016 Wilco's most recent album entitled Schmilko which is a direct reference to the Harry Nilsson album Nilsson Schmilson and the song that we're going to play from this was the first single If I Ever Was a Child so Schmilko it's uh, essentially a companion piece to Star Wars and the same sense as Star Wars it's a stripped down very casual, no-frills, foundational approach. It's probably their most nuanced album to date, and the all-acoustic sound makes it their most thematically unified album since AM. And uh, kind of in the same sense of Star Wars, a lot of these songs sound a bit incomplete, and no more you think could have been added in like editing uh, slash post-production, but were omitted. As a result... Like uh, the album Sukure, which um, was a Jeff Tweedy solo record that he also did with his son Spencer on playing drums, Smilka sort of feels like a transitional period for the band and one that could result in the second creative peak if they continue tweaking and pushing forward. And much of this record um, was recorded at the same time uh, as the Star Wars sessions though it shares very few similarities to that record. Um, it feels like it's its natural counterpoint, um, and many of the songs on Schmilko, they sound like traditional Wilco songs with just, a lo- with just enough melodic shimmering to keep you coming back, though here in a much more hushed manner. Um, like Tweety's uh, uh, Sucre album from 2014, I loved Schmilko uh, when it came out, and I really relied on this through the fall of 2016. Both of those albums were huge records for me last year. Very, very deeply personal and um, 
this was the first record that I truly loved since Sky Blue Sky. Um, I will definitely agree that uh, Star Wars, I think, is their best album through uh, or since um, A Ghost is Born. Um, but this record, I, I really connected with Sky Blue Sky when that came out. And this record was the first time where I really, truly felt like um, Wilco was making current music that I was completely on board with. Uh, I was a very much of a fan of Schmilko and um, and very excited to see where they go uh, forward with this. So now it'll be really interesting to see where the band goes from, you know, Star Wars and Schmilko. Over the last two records, they've really worked to push beyond the sonic achievements from being there through A Ghost is Born, as well as the kind of career retrospective nature of Sky Blue Sky through The Whole Love. Yet they've yet to release another monumental creative achievement on par with their first, well, I guess basically being there through A Ghost is Born, which is their career peak to this point. Uh, You know, many of the songs from the last four records, they really haven't caught on to the live rotation. They're played to death through the immediate album cycle tour and then pretty much forgotten by the next tour. It's not necessarily a bad thing, yet the band you know, has shown some second career peak hints, especially recently, and the key would seem that you know, if they can focus on crafting a full album of the 1995 through 2004 era quality songs with this uh, creative ingenuity of 1999 through 2004, combined with that you know, kind of career satisfaction the placid satisfaction of 2007 through 2017. Yeah, for me, for the first time since 2008, I think this is entirely possible for the band. Um, you know, I think they kind of go one of two ways. Either they're tweaking their sound and they're kind of pushing towards this um, really big next record, uh, or next couple of records, or... And I'd be completely fine to be totally honest with this other approach, and they've earned this place. They're just kind of playing what they want to play, and they're going to keep putting out these kind of smaller records and continue this career as kind of a larger cult band and, um, you know, really allow their financial and creative freedom to just kind of let them just keep making music, even if it doesn't connect on the level of their biggest uh, their biggest records. Yeah, to me, I kind of think Wilco at this point is, um, you know, we had mentioned the band Yola Tango uh, in discussing the Wilco, the album. I think they're sort of in a pretty similar career stretch as Yola Tango's, though, whereas Yola Tango's big creative album peak was in the 90s, you want to say, 1993 up through 2000. Ever since then, they've kind of been putting out very good records when they feel like it on their own terms. Nothing earth-shattering, just good what Yola Tango is supposed to sound like. And I think Wilco's probably going to do somewhat the same thing. I think they're actually, they said that they're going to take off 2018 from the road. I don't know how this affects the studio output. But to me, it just seems they could put out you know very good Albums that sound like Wilco for the next, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so, and just keep doing it without having any, nothing like a Yankee Hotel Foxtrot Ghost is Born peak, but I think they could still be very good while at the same time being a bit of a legacy band. Uh, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, if, if look, if, if going forward they get into the studio every couple of years, they're kind of these, you know, less, you know, 
big dramatic albums that they were releasing in the middle of their career if they're still putting out good strong wilco albums that sound like wilco and you know they've really become such a tight live band i mean since since they kind of solidified their their you know full six member band after a ghost is born i mean they're they're just a fantastic live band and if that's kind of where they are in their career and where they want to take it you know, nothing wrong with putting out some great music every once in a while and hitting yeah. the road and playing some strong live shows. Well, whatever way they go, um, we hope that you guys have enjoyed this career retrospect and deep dive into Wilco's career. If you aren't a Wilco fan and you made it through this podcast, congratulations. And we hope that we have converted you. If you are a fan, we hope that you learned a thing or two new and we hope you guys enjoyed this really special episode um, uh, about, uh, about Wilco. All right, so uh, we're going to play one last Wilco song here. Uh, we're going to play um, If I Ever Was a Child off of Schmilko from 2016. Just a reminder that um, we are on social media at Twitter. We are at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Have a medium page. It's medium.com slash beyond the pond. And of course, there's the master beyond the pond podcast song, Spotify playlist. Usually uh, the day that the episode goes live, we try to update the master playlist to feature all the songs that are in any given episode, so long as Spotify has them. Spotify has all the Wilco songs that we mentioned, so there will be uh, 10 Wilco songs to throw into the Spotify playlist. And uh, Josh, while we're at it, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, what is your Twitter handle again? Uh, I am at Nola Socks on Twitter. That's- Noah, like New Orleans, N-O-L-A-S-O-X. Okay. Hey, cool. And um, as uh, regular listeners will know, publishing structure, we typically try to get these uh, episodes up every other Tuesday. 
Tuesdays, as you all know, as we well know, have absolutely no feel. We need something to break the monotony of the week up, so we invite you to go beyond the pond with us uh, every other Tuesday. So keep an eye out for this episode, as well as a couple others that we have coming up uh, throughout the remainder of the fall and winter. And uh, Josh, we really want to thank you, man. Um, This has been an episode that's been... Uh, a long time planning, a long time working on. We were very, very excited to bring you on, talk about a favorite band of all of ours, and um, thank you so much for everything you added to this. This has been a ton of fun. Yeah, Brian and uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Brian and David, thanks for uh, having me on. This was fun. You are welcome. It was uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I very much enjoyed this episode. And uh, on that note. I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And we heard from Josh Carver as well in this episode. But if you've made it this far, thank you very much for listening. Come back in two Tuesdays when together we will go beyond the pond. The greatest last track of all time.